0: And so today, I want to welcome you back to part three of our relationship rehab series. If this is your first time joining us, um, the last few weeks, we've been walking you through how you can repair and restore the broken relationships in your life. But let's be honest, like, although we know that relationships are critical to our well-being, how how many of you know that they are difficult? How many of you know that they're hard to build and they're very, very easy to break? And each of us knows this because we have at least, I don't know, one or two people in our lives in which we were once close to them, we loved and respected them, but now there is a rift that has developed over the past few years. And so one of the reasons that relationships are so difficult is because when two people uh, are, are interact with each other for a long enough time, they experience this thing, guess what, called conflict. Now, I I know that no matter how hard you try to avoid conflict, no matter how much you try to avoid it or stay on the positive side, there will often be conflict that arises in your relationships. And so today, what I want to do is I want to offer you some tips on conflict resolutions. Is that okay? Okay. Conflict resolution. All right. So a few years ago, I joined a boxing gym. Joined a boxing gym in Cherry Hill. um, And I was doing well enough. At one point, my trainer was like, hey, um, why don't you get into the ring and spar? And I was like, no, (laughs) I don't wanna, I don't have any interest in getting hit in the head. I like to punch things like heavy bags uh, and punching bags. I don't wanna get like hit in the head or punched in the face. Um, But I've always been intrigued by boxing because in boxing, you have a number of different styles. You have the slugger and the slugger takes a fair amount of damage, man, but they put everything into each and every punch. Then you have the counterpuncher who rarely gets touched, but he hits with this pinpoint accuracy. Yeah. Then you have an outboxer who stays on the outside and, and, and attacks. And, and although there's several different boxing styles and each is unique, here's what I know about them. Each of these styles is intended to frustrate the opponent. Yeah. And I think the same thing that's true of boxing is true of our combat styles. Each of us has a different combat style as it pertains to relationships. We all all possess different type of styles that, let's be honest, can be very frustrating to one another. Here's the first one. The first person is the peacemaker. The peacemaker, in the words of J.D. Greer, you know, they hate disagreements. Whenever there's conflict, they're always trying to move the needle back to harmony. And they're motivated by the need for peace in themselves and peace around each other. And so they typically avoid any conflict unless they're advocating for somebody else. Right? That's, that's typically what happens. And so the problem with this approach, though, is it often leads to something that I would describe as a false peace. A false peace is when you give the impression that everything is all good, that it's working out, that there's no problems, but deep inside, you're fuming, you're angry. And sometimes peacemakers will settle for a truce instead of doing the hard work and pushing forward for peace. Then, not only are there peacemakers, but there's also stonewallers. You know exactly who this person is. The stonewaller is a person that addresses conflict by not being pleasant, not smiling, and they will punish you with their body language, right? They're the person that withdraws from interaction, they shut down, they, they cut themselves off, and they're doing that instead of confronting the issue. Right? What you know is, you know this person very well. They refuse to make eye contact, they, they, ex- they, they give you these nonverbal cues that they're not interested. And then if you ask them or you notice that something is wrong, you say, hey, is everything okay? They say, I'm fine. You're like, I know that there's something going on. And so that's the stonewall. Then you have another style called the bottler. The bottler. This person, rather than dealing or expressing their emotions, they just stuff it into their hearts. They stuff it deep into their hearts. And sometimes they do that because of fear of vulnerability, other times because of fear of being misunderstood, but other times they bottle their emotions because they're afraid of abandonment or they're afraid of being judged negatively for how they feel. And so we know that this has, this is a lot of us struggle with this, but it can have some real problems with your physical, mental, and emotional health because it leads to stress and anxiety. Then it's my favorite out of all of them. It's the litigator. Y'all know this person. The litigator is the person that wants all the smoke. They want all of it. They're, they're an expert at arguing. And they're really, really good at arguing, blaming others, and then proving that they're not at fault. Wow. Wow. They're, they're typically, how can you describe them? like quick-witted. They're very intelligent. And the problem with them is, not they're, they're annoying too sometimes, I would, I would say. They'd be annoying, but, but the problem with them is they argue proficiently, but they don't resolve conflict effectively because their goal is not to win. Their goal is not to resolve the conflict is to win an argument because in other spheres of influence, when they win an argument, some of y'all hurting right now, in other spheres of influence, when they argue, they get rewarded for it. So they think when you bring that type of confrontation in the home that you're going to get rewarded because you're a great litigator, but you've really won nothing at all because you only further the problem down the road. And then not only that, you have the litigator, then you have this person called the screamer. Y'all know them? The screamer. This person goes ballistic. As soon as their emotions get high, their voice gets high as well. They use the magnitude of their voice. I would argue this is very manipulative, but they use the magnitude of their voice to silence the problems or the people around them. The people around them don't even want to talk about the problem anymore because they're like, you know what, I'm going to protect my peace today. I'm not going to say anything to them about this because I know it's just going to lead to this big blow up. You know what, I would rather not say anything at all instead of get involved with this person and it turn to a bigger deal than it needs to be. So I'm just going to be quiet. So These are the different styles. And, and if you're looking to relate, re, if you're looking to rehab your relationship, let me tell you that these are ineffective styles. They will only perpetrate problems and lead to worse and worse issues. But, but if you're looking to re- rehab your relationship today, I want to introduce you to our passage this morning. And I think this gentleman here that wrote it actually has a keen understanding of conflict. He is Jesus's half-brother, James. And he probably knows a little bit about conflict. This sounds like a good reality TV show, but can you imagine growing up in a household with Jesus? Jesus gets out of bed and his breath is fresh and his bed is perfectly made. Jesus gets straight A's. Jesus eats all his vegetables. Jesus doesn't talk back. Jesus does all the little things that you are supposed to do as a child. And James probably heard a few times, how come you can't be like your brother Jesus? And I say that in jest, of course, but I think he does know something a bit about conflict. Join me. I'm in James, the fourth chapter. James, the fourth chapter. I'm going to pop up on your screen. James, the fourth chapter, reading verses one through four. This is what it said. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You you murder and covet because you cannot obtain. You fight, get this, and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So that you may spend it on your pleasures. Listen to the A clause of verse 4. It says, you adulterous people. I'm just going to leave that right there. Here's the big idea today. To resolve conflict, we must be careful of our tendency to blame others. You must be careful to, to, uh, of our tendency to blame others. James begins with a rhetorical question. He says, what is the source of the wars and fights among you? Now, listen to how he's describing conflict in the church. He's describing conflict as a war and a fight. And let me just be honest, I don't think this is hyperbolic language. I think what he's saying is that people in the church are engaged in prolonged disputes with one another. Now, if you think about the house churches that James is writing to or the audience he's writing to right now, he's writing to a group of people in which there was a lot of favoritism. There was a lot of doctrinal disagreements. There was slander. There was division over wealth and social status, among other things. And there's so much carnage that is going on in these churches that James describes them as war. Now, here's what I find interesting, family, is that these were people that really claimed to love Jesus. <laughs> Let me make it a little bit plainer. These were people that were baptized. These were people that were serving on the dream team, that were in the kids' ministry, that were leading crews, that were singing on the stage, that were participating in the kids' ministry, and they were engaged in such severe conflict that James describes it as wars and fights. Let me just tell you, nobody knows how to fight quite like church people. Church people know how to start a war. But you know what, family? Let me just be honest. Most of what you read in the New Testament is letters written to address conflict or letters um, describing conflict. You remember with the first church in, in Acts 2, don't you? The church was lauded for their ability to share resources with one another. It says that they took all their financial resources and they laid them at the apostles' feet. And we clap our hands in Acts 2, 42 through 46. But then four chapters later in Acts 6, 1 through 5. The same church that was generous with all started being stingy to the Greek-speaking widows who were not experiencing or getting the resources that the Hebrew-speaking ones were. So what you have is there was division across racial and ethnic lines. And then on top of that, I think the apostles kind of copped out of their responsibility because they said, well, we need to stay consistent with preaching and teaching the word. We can't be bothered by this. I understand why they did it. But all I'm saying is that their actions led to conflict in the early church. But not only that, there was a letter written to this church in Galatia that had read or had been believing a different gospel altogether. False teachers had come into the church and they started spreading these rumors about who Christ was. And not only that, they were devouring one another with their words. This is what some can describe as verbal cannibalism. And then on top of that, then you had the Corinthian church. Y'all know all about the Corinthian church. They started to form cliques around the leaders that they really loved. Then you had the Philippian church where Paul had to stop his letter about joy to address two women that were fighting so much in the congregation that it was becoming disruptive and harmful. What I'm saying is that churches, even back then, were full of conflict. Let me just say this parenthetically. I know that there's some secret church shoppers in the building. Hey, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to aisle one. (laughs) We're so grateful that you're here. We're we're, we're thankful that you showed up today. Hopefully it was life-giving and is edifying for you thus far. But listen, let me just tell you a little secret. As you're searching for a new church, as you're looking for a church, of course you should like the church, naturally. Of course the gospel should should be preached, right? But let me just tell you a little secret. You are not going to find a perfectly harmonious church. There's conflict in all of our churches. Here's the thing. The difference between a healthy church and an unhealthy church is not the presence of conflict, but rather it's what they fight over and how they address the conflict. <laughs> Does that make sense? If, if people in the church are fighting about how to reach people for Jesus, and some say, no, we need to go harder at our crew strategy. Others are saying, no, we need to go more depth, in depth with our outreach. Well, you know what? That's a church you can be a part of. Because they're fighting over things that really matter. But if you go to a church where they're fighting over robes and worship styles and and a bunch of other things, if they're fighting over the minor things, then let me just tell you, you need to run. If you go to a church and it just seems like the pastor is just throwing subliminal jabs from the stage. He's just throwing subs the whole time. If if he's out there just throwing shade like an oak tree, let me just tell you, you are probably in the wrong church. Let me just go on. All I'm saying is that if you were looking for a church today, like you're going to find some churches that are great. But if you get behind the scenes, you'll see there's conflict. But the question is, is how do they deal with the conflict? Do they deal with it in a healthy way or do they deal with it in an unhealthy way? Let me just go on here. Let me park down your street. James is not just talking to his audience. He's talking to us as well. He's asking us what's causing the fights and arguments in your relationship. And this is, he's asking us a rhetorical question. And if some of us can answer, we would say, "Well, that's an easy answer. It's them." Over there. It's they. Because so and so did such and such. If you're married, you're probably saying, "Of course it's my spouse." Or it's my children. We begin pointing the finger. Maybe it's your friend or you think it's your boss. Listen, we think that conflict is always somebody else's fault. We do this thing called blame shift. In the words of Jesus, we're quick to point out the speck in our brother's eye. But we fail to look at the log in our own eye. But don't you know that this is old as humanity, church? That people have been doing this forever. That when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden... They were hanging out and eating all the fruits, focus on all. They were eating the fruits and enjoying themselves. And then they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God walks up to them in the cool of the garden. He says, had you ate of the forbidden tree? Adam's answer should have been, yes, my bad, I'm sorry. But you know, he tried a different approach. He said, you know what? I'm going to try a different I'm going to do this this thing called um, blame shifting well, it was the woman you gave me. And so what he was doing was he was blaming the woman and he was also blaming God indirectly because he's saying that I wouldn't have been in this predicament if you hadn't given me this woman who was supposed to be a help me, but now she's a hindrance to me and she forced me to eat of this fruit. So he's blame shifting. But we shouldn't look at Adam funny, should we? Because this is a common practice of us all. If we had a broken childhood and our lives are in shambles, we blame our parents. Right. If we don't like how something happened, we blame the pastor. Yeah. If we didn't get enough good education, then we blame the teachers. Yeah. If we didn't get the raise we wanted, we blame the boss. So we blame the co-workers. If our relationships aren't working out, we blame our friends. If we don't like how the country is run, we blame the government officials. Well, we should blame them a little bit, but, <laughs> but, you, but case in point, Rarely do we take responsibility, and more often than not, we point the finger at others. And that's why James says, no, 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 no. Because of verse 1, he says, no. Don't they come because of your passions that wage war within you? Look at him slap us in the face. The word he uses for passions is the word, he did not. He did not, Jesus. I was working on that word, too. He did not. It's where we get the word. Hedonism, you know, what hedonism is hedonism is the term that describes a mindset or lifestyle that views pleasure as the tre- chief goal. In other words, it's what motivates people in life. Hedonism get this is ruthlessly pursuing the things that make you happy exclusively. That's what it is. Hedonism is when you ruthlessly pursue those things that make you happy. Get this James is explaining to us. That conflicts arise because we believe that someone is standing in between us and the thing that's going to make us happy. What he's implying is that the source of your fights and your quarrels is that you want something you think you're entitled to and this person is keeping you away from it. That's what he's arguing family. The reason we have all these disturbances and these arguments is you're like this person is keeping me from getting that thing that makes me feel fulfilled, that makes me feel satisfied, and that makes me feel happy in life. So therefore, I will run over them and cause quarrels with them until I get what I want. Are y'all with me, church? James is saying, you know, the reason you feel that way is because your desire comes from a place of lack. You want something that you don't have. And it's causing you to be frustrated and discontent. And our desire then becomes all-consuming. And you will then act in a way that is harmful to others in order to do it. I got that from chat GPT right there. That thing was good. I just want you to know that. I got that from chat GPT. I got to let you know. Wow, wow. That's what I'm saying to you, family. Is that many of us are seeing other people as the enemy in our lives. Because they're hindering us from getting... Can I make it really practical? Think about what happens at work. You've been working your tail off, haven't you? Working your fingers down to the what? (coughs) You've been working. And you want to get that salary. So you wrote up that little letter to your boss telling them about how you deserve this raise. And then they told you, not right now. And maybe you didn't even want the money that much. Maybe you just wanted the congratulatory wishes. Maybe you just wanted the position change, And so how do you respond? Of course you say, you know what, no problem. God will supply my need according to the riches of his glory. I trust him, and I trust your decision-making. So I'm not going to fight or argue with you. Of course we do that, right? But some people start fights. They start arguments. They create chaos in the division. They start spreading rumors about the boss, and then they do the minimal work and wonder why they don't get the raise or the promotion the next time. Maybe it was because you were being tested to see if you had character and integrity and you failed to test. And so it's hindering you from getting that thing that you want. Maybe it's your spouse. You put together a honey-do list and you were like, I need you to do this, 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 and that. All the list. I'm going to do the first two. But you were like, no, no, I want you to do the honey-do list. And then you came up and that list wasn't done. And then what did you do? You pouted around the house pounded around the house, stomping your feet. And on top of that, you held back your physical and emotional intimacy. It's because you wanted them to do something that you thought would make you happy and satisfied. They didn't do that, so they went from your spouse, the one that you exchanged vows with, to your enemy in a moment's notice. Maybe it's your parent. Your parent told you you couldn't go out for this particular event because they were looking out for your your best interest in mind. So you decided that you were going to abuse them with your emotions by not talking to them and by sulking around the house. Maybe it was your friend. There was a miscommunication, and rather than you talking to them, you just decided to gossip about them. What I'm saying is the reason we have so many conflicts... And marriages and friendships in churches is because we have this intense desire for something we don't have. And then the other person with conflicting desires is standing in our way from getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wretched people that we are. Yeah. And this is what James is letting us know. And when a conflict gets heated, it's because we've determined that that something is so important to our lives that we can't function. And so what happens? You know what the cause of our problems is? The pro- co- co- cause of our relational problems is us. It's our self-centered, get-what-you-want-at-all-times at all, adi- at all times type of attitude that points the finger at other people but does not share any of the blame themselves. Wow. I didn't think I was going to get amen on that. It's all good. <laughs> and listen to this word that James uses, or this phrase. He says, isn't this because of the passions at war within you y'all see that passions at war within you now um what theologians would say is that this is an old te- old testament illusion illish- to idolatry now i know that when some of us think about idolatry we think about bowing down to statues but but an idol is anything that's replaced god's love or god's place in your heart or your lives it's the thing that you want so bad that you're willing to start quarrels and arguments about that's an idol It's the thing that controls us. It's the thing that you rely on for fulfillment and happiness. It's that thing that if it wasn't in your life, you wouldn't feel fulfilled or you would feel like you're lacking something. And so you might be saying, well, pastor, how do I know to become an idol? He tells us in verse number two. He says, you desire, you do not have. Get this. You murder and covet and cannot attain. Now, he's speaking to church people here. So I doubt that there's actually a lot of murders going on. But what I think his point is well taken. You know that it's become an idol when you're willing to go to extreme lengths to attain it, even to the point that you're dead in a relationship. Are y'all with me? Even to that point, Like, like if you're willing to stonewall your good friend because they won't do whatever you need them to do, then you know it's become an idol. If you're willing to stop talking to your friend or your spouse for two or three days and they're on one side of the house and you're on the other side of the house or they're on one corner of the apartment or you're in the other corner of the apartment and y'all can't talk because they won't do that thing that you want, then you know that that has become an idol. It's that thing that if you do not have, it would make your life feel like it's not complete. And then James just says it like this, verse 3, he says, let me give you some more smoke. Because you love it so much. Look what he says. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and do not receive because, get this, you ask with wrong motives. So that you may spend it on your what? On your pleasures. Let's start with the latter and then we'll work on the former. He says, you don't have what you, ha- what, what you want because if I gave it to you, you would spend it on your pleasures or your idols. In other words, we pray for things that are not in line with God's will, but rather they reflect the selfish desires of our heart. We're like, God, if you don't give me this job, I can't be happy. God, if you don't let me make X amount of money, then I can't be with my spouse. God, if you cannot, if you don't give me financial freedom, and the Latin God says, Aren't I enough? Aren't I enough? You pray with selfish motives, don't get what you want, and then get mad at me because you expect me to give you something that's going to cause division between you and I. I don't work or operate like that. He's like, like, am I not sufficient? Am I not good enough? See, the new car will lose its value as soon as you take it off the lot. Some of y'all know about that. You paying a car payment on a new car that has depreciated 20% in value and you are upset right now. Run it into the dirt. That's all I got to say. Just just keep running into dirt. Or give it back. Get a smaller car payment. What am, what am I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you got that new car. That thing will fade. The luster of fame, that's going to fade. But you know what doesn't fade? The beauty of what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. The good news of the gospel is something that does not lose its allure. The fact that Jesus was the son of God or is the son of God. That left the chaos, left the the, the, the clarity and the calm of heaven, came down into the chaos of earth and bore our sin on the cross. See, a lot of us think that other people are our enemies. You know what is your real enemy? It's the wrath of God. It's the judgment of God that, that is pronounced on each and every one of us because we have deeply and categorically gone against his wishes and will. We should be paying for our sins and in eternity. But Jesus was like, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to cancel your sin. I'm going to divert God's wrath. I'm going to turn aside God's judgment. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to rise again with all power in my hands to show that I can conquer death. I can conquer sin. I can conquer hell. And I can conquer any of those enemies that are a hindrance to you. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in me. And then when you put your faith and trust in me, then I remove all the condemnation, all the things that you feel guilty about from your past, present, and future. He's saying that I wipe it all away. It is gone, like the song says. All the sins is dead and gone. Let me just tell you, friends, that is the type of thing that does not lose its luster. James keeps on going on. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. So he means... Many of our prayer lives are very anemic. You're like, well, Pastor, I, I, I do pray. I throw up a Hail Mary prayer in the shower. I throw it up, Jesus. I've been praying about this thing for the last... <laughs> I've been praying about this thing in the shower. But, but the word that he uses for prayer here means to continually beg or plead for God to do something. So it means that many of the things, the reason we don't have many of the things we want in life is because we don't have any grit in our prayer life. We don't have any grit. If we don't get something that we really want, we will stop when we don't get something that we There we go. Got it. There we go. I got number four. There, Hey, there we go. And so what was I saying? Grit. We don't have any grit in our prayer lives. If we don't get something that we want, one time we get upset with God and we think that he's being stingy with us. And he's like, maybe if you will continue to pray, I will develop your character. And as I develop your character, I will give you the competency as you pray. And then when I bless you with that thing, you will have the ability to handle it because I've developed your capacity through prayer. But you won't pray. You won't pray because you're not used to fighting for anything. You want it to be given to you on a silver plate. You grew up in a way that you didn't have to fight or you didn't have to argue for something. And he's like, listen, I need you to push forward and pray. And if you do that, maybe I might bless you with things that I have for you. Amen? All right, let me give you some quick points on how to mitigate some conflict. You ready for them? You want to write these down? Number one, you got to overlook some things. You got to overlook some things. Man, some of y'all... Some of y'all hold on to more past events than AI software. I'm just going to be honest with you. You you hold on to the past too much. Look what it says in Proverbs 19.11. A person's insight gives him patience and his virtue is to overlook an offense. You can't hold on to everything. Some things you just have to let go. Do you know anybody that just holds on to everything? Don't put your hand up. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't look. Don't look at them either. Don't look at them. Some things you just gotta let go. Like if Jesus for you, like you give people less grace than Jesus is giving them. Like just let some stuff go. Here's the second one. Be gentle. Be gentle. This is what it says, Galatians 6 1. If a person is overtaken in fault, restore them gently. Now, some of y'all are like, well, I can't be gentle because I'm not soft. I need to let them know. You know, no, 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 stop, stop. You know the illustration or the, or the illustration that's commonly used for gentleness? It's when you take a bit and you put it into a horse of the mouth, the mouth of a horse. That horse can throw you off its back, trample you, all that type of stuff. I'm not an equestrian and I know that. But what gentleness is, is strength under control. And so sometimes you do have to confront the person, but you need to let your emotions come down a little bit first. Douse your emotions with the gospel first. Calm down. Remember what you've been forgiven of first, and then you can confront the person. Let me get the, if you feel really hyped and animated and you can't wait to talk to them about what they've done to you, guess what? You don't need to talk to them yet till I see him. I'm going to ba. I did that one time. <laughs> it was one of my kids, they were having a problem in school. And I was telling my wife, like when I talk to him, I'm going, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a word. And then they then they called. And I was like, all right, Sarah, you got that. You got that. And she was like, oh, what happened to the big dog? You did a lot of barking. But as soon as you finished up all that barking, she called. You didn't want to talk to her. But what I'm saying is. You gotta be gentle, family. Be gentle. Be strength under control. Here's the last one. Practice the three A's. Practice the three A's. Are you ready for the A's? Number one, admit. 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 What exactly are you sorry for? Or what exactly are you challenging them about? Like if you can't be specific, then you need to figure out what have they done wrong, right? Or what you're apologizing for. Here's Here's the second one. Apologize. Once again, be specific. What does an apology cost you? An apology can cause you to rehab your entire relationship. But many of us don't want to offer it because we have too much pride. Here's the last one. Ask for forgiveness. We should give forgiveness, but we should also receive forgiveness. And you know why, family? Because Jesus has given us forgiveness. A few years ago, my um, one of my nephews asked me, a car loan for him. He's like, can you be a co- co-signer on a car loan? I was like, ah. I broke out an old Kevin Hart joke on him. I said, well, I got to check in in the savings. And the way that works out, my money has to transfer, and I don't know if it's, y'all don't remember that. Wow. Gosh. I said it was old. Anyway, I was nervous to take on a debt that wasn't mine. I didn't want to pay for something that wasn't mine, some old car. I I wasn't going to drive it, but I'm so glad that 2,000 years ago, Jesus decided that he was going to cover an eternal debt that wasn't his. When he volunteered to be our co-signer on our loan, we defaulted because we could never pay God back for all the things that we've done wrong. But Jesus, in his mercy, decided that he was going to cover the entire cost of the payment in full, not only for us, but for other people. This is the essence of forgiveness, family. So if Jesus can take on a debt that wasn't his, and forgive us for a crime that wasn't his, surely you and I can show some grace to people. Surely we can be gentle. Surely we can practice the three A's. And surely we can learn to overlook some of the offenses. Amen. Why don't you let me pray for you? Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes. Maybe it's somebody out there that you're angry with right now. They have wronged you. They have maligned you. They have done things against you that has really hurt your feelings. I want you to get a mental image of them right now. Think about that person. Maybe it was your dad or your spouse or your co-workers. That person that you're having a hard time forgiving. Now, I want you to imagine that that person is whom Jesus died on the cross for. That the gospel is sufficient for the biggest offender, and it's also sufficient for us. And so, Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus for everybody online, for everybody in person that's struggling in heart, struggling in heart and mind, forgiving and, and moving forward in their relationships. Father, I pray that you will bless them and that you will keep them. I pray that you would help them move toward a place of forgiveness because they have been forgiven in you. Lord, I pray for all the litigators in the place. I pray for the stonewallers and the peacemakers, the the bottleneckers, I mean the the bottlers, all of these folks who who bottle in their feelings or deal with conflict in a different way. Lord, would you give us the wisdom to navigate it with care so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves and remember that you have forgiven us. And so, Lord, if you do that, we be so careful to honor and love you. So, Lord, heal the deep and broken areas in our heart where we need you. And so, Lord, we honor you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, friends, I'm, I'm finished up. But I want...